This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, we're kicking off National Poetry Month with award-winning poet Elizabeth Alexander, who came to the library to celebrate the release of her new memoir, The Light of the World. In this provocative conversation with the New Yorker writer, Hilton Alls, Alexander talks about dreams, obsession, and her dedication to social justice. Thank you all for coming. Um, I just have to get my Louis Armstrong handkerchief out. It's a little warm. And uh, I wanted to read this um, introduction really to, as a way of celebrating Elizabeth and uh, the event. Introductions are a strange practice, but a necessary one, usually polite at the core fact-based and essentially essentializing, particularly if the host or audience only has a cursory knowledge of the subject. But in this case, none of that's even close to the truth. I feel as though I've always known Elizabeth or known of her. And in that knowing, which includes her work as a poet, a legendary professor in Yale's African-American Studies Department, a best-selling author, and strong and committed mother of two, there are, perforce, a multitude of feelings that cannot be contained in an introduction. So, the project at hand is kind of moot, existentially speaking, but since we are on Earth, and this, there is a task to perform, let's begin with her birth in 1962 in Harlem, USA, and her heritage, which includes the people of Harlem, and her father, Clifford Alexander, Jr., former United States Secretary and Equal Opportunity Commissioner, and her mother, the very beautiful Adele, a professor who has taught legions about black women's lives, and her brother Mark, who has been a senior advisor to President Obama during his first campaign, and forgive me if I'm leaving something out. The point is, Elizabeth, a self-described race woman, comes from a house not built on history lost, which is where most black Americans live, but history gained. And your ear had to be in your foot if you didn't hear that in her poem, Praise Song for the Day, which she read so exceptionally well and beautifully at President Obama's 2009 swearing in. And there she said, we encounter each other in words, words spiny or smooth, whispered or declaimed, words to consider reconsider. And that's what tonight will give us, Elizabeth's words and some memories, which might include the afternoon she read at President Obama's first swearing-in, which was the swearing-in of so much more stuff too, including Elizabeth's national prominence as a poet, and it was the swearing-in of Elizabeth the playwright, author of Diva Studies, a play her late husband Fikri loved and it was also the swearing-in of Professor Elizabeth Alexander, 
author of the two irreplaceable essay collections, 2004's The Black Interior and 2007's Power and Possibility. Now we have Elizabeth the memoirist, the poet working in prose in her best-selling book, The Light of the World, which chronicles her nearly 20-year love affair and life with Fikri, artist and chef, father and friend, a a bespectacled man who brought black difference into Elizabeth's black America, which is most of our America. And if you listen, you know that Elizabeth is its true laureate. Ladies and gentlemen, Elizabeth Alexander. Thank you. Um, I have to say, um, the rather eager young man has taken my questions. I need them back. Thank you so much. (laughs) Um, Well, this is something I've been wanting to do for a while, um, only because you have given so much of yourself to other people, and it is a rare person who does that without complaint. Um, I never hear you complain. I only hear you reinforce and support Uh, people and societies that you love. Um, That's going to be something that comes back in the conversation as a theme, but I wanted to start really with words Um, and to talk about your life as an artist, um, which you sometimes put to the forefront, sometimes you recede from in order to foster the talents of others, but there's no stopping you now with this book. Um, so let's talk a little bit about little Lizzie and, and, uh, and uh, how, does she, how does she come to be herself as an artist? Um, little Lizzie um, uh, was a girl, a child, who uh, dreamed at night very vividly mm-hmm. uh, and who would come downstairs to her parents and thank you for calling their names mm-hmm and say, I had the most extraordinary dream. And if my mother, who you know to be elegant and dry, were here (laughs) telling the story, she would say, and so we would put down whatever other things we were doing. (laughs) 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 All else would pause, and you would say what you had seen or been visited with the night before. And so I I, I think that um, um, I, I give that to my parents, um, who and I never knew that other people didn't dream wildly or remember their dreams all the time. Wow. Um, and it always surprised me. Fikre, the most creative person I ever knew, um, was not someone who very often remembered his dreams. Um, wow. uh, so um, that's probably where it began. And I think um, also with listening. Mm -hmm. listening to the way that people spoke, listening to the different ways that people spoke around me. 
listening to a Jamaican grandfather with one particular inflection, one particular vocabulary, listening to, and I've talked about this before, my father's great, uh, elegant Harlem swearing uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, that was just like nothing else, thrilling. Yeah. You know, we would pray for traffic <laughs> so, that, so that we could hear him just, you know, carry on. Yes. And he does that now. My children think it's the most entertaining thing we've ever seen. Um, and, and my mother's uh, and tremendously elegant uh, way of, of, of speaking and, and, and understatement. Mm -hmm. um, and hearing the traces of Alabama in my grandmother's speech and seeing also the different kinds of words that she used and would credit to her great teacher at Dunbar High School in Washington, D.C., Miss Otelia Cromwell, mm -hmm. who years later uh, I discovered was one of the first, I believe, the uh, fourth African-American woman to earn the Ph.D., yes. and that she received her Ph.D. in English from Yale. Yes. So I felt that, that the, the person, my, my, my grandmother would correct my English and say, that is what Miss Cromwell told us. Yes. And so so, you know, clearly it seemed to me that, that, that a circle needed to be closed yes. um, with beginning to research her work and reading her letters about her time finding her way at Yale in the 1920s and wanting to write about black people and, and saying to her father, uh, but certainly I didn't come here to learn how to do that, right. so I will let these people teach me Shakespeare. Yes. And I will then do what I have to do, which she did in 1931 with her first anthology of African-American writing for teachers. Yes. So I think that, you know, there's all of that and, and, and also of reading, you know, also reading. And I think that all of us um, are children who read and read and read and read yes and read everything and read what we're supposed to and read what we're not supposed to uh, and read ahead of ourselves yes um, read under the desk read under the desk read yes. in secret tuck things you know beneath yes. the mattress um, and, and and read uh, I think indiscriminately yes um, and just put it all in now there's there was something an extraordinary moment um, I, I met your mother for the first time recently and there was something, there's something very powerful about her presence. And the, one of the things that I would say was so unique about her was that she was a woman who stood square mm. and she looked you in the eye. And it wasn't about um, defiance or being annoyed by your presence. It was just that she was looking to see who you were. And one of the things that I love about your writing is that, um, you know, if you go to Elizabeth, we'll get into the individual volumes, but if you go through Elizabeth's writing, the female character, whether it's Elizabeth or someone else that you're dreaming about, i.e. Toni Morrison and so on, they are women that look you square in the eye. Um, and one of the strengths I feel about your poetry and your essays is um, you're looking at us square in the eye and at the same time you want us to tell, tell you who we are. So I'm interested um, and learning a bit more about the kinds of things you were reading that spoke to you about that kind of directness, emotional connection and directness. That is such an interesting observation. And um, I think I can, you know, answer it a, a little bit obliquely because when I, think about looking, <laughs> when I think about looking directly, I think actually about literally looking mm -hmm. at people and looking at paintings, okay. uh, looking at art 
growing up with art around, mm -hmm. um, growing up with paintings on the wall, many of them by my great uncle, who was the painter Charles Alston, mm -hmm. um, many of them which were made by my mother, um, who was a very, very accomplished artist before she became a mother, before she became a historian. So mm -hmm. she had many, um, many amazing lives. Mm -hmm. And um, so there were always beautiful things to look at and to look at again and to regard with care and the expectation that you would look and see something different each time. There was that kind of full-on, I, I think, directness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know. I mean, all I can think of is, is a certain kind of, you know, my, as my grandmother would say, not raising, that is cattle, but rearing, mm -hmm. you know, um, a kind of expectation that as black people, mm -hmm. you don't break eye contact with anybody mm -hmm. ever, mm -hmm. you know, so, so that very, very keen sense that um, the world is yours stands squarely in it and mm -hmm. that that was part of kind of race work and race rhetoric and that to to break that would be actually the shame this is a fascinating and a wonderful segue to my next question because one of the things that um gets very short shrift in terms of the story of blackness um are the many different classes right mm -hmm. that exist within black america and um, Daryl Pinkney, for instance, his novel High Cotton was about the black middle class in the Midwest. And your family being black middle class professionals, did that in certain black worlds make you feel outside of those worlds? Similarly, did you feel outside of certain white worlds at the Sidwell Friends School, for instance? <laughs> because, which is way... The Sidwell Friends School. The Sidwell Friends Did you feel outside of certain narratives um, because of that difference? Um, well, my, my grandmother always told us, she, she, she didn't teach us, you know, they weren't these kind of black people who teach you to be superior to others. Right. Um, in fact, that was a kind of a verboten ideology. Yes. But she did teach us that if someone showed their racism or, you know, she wouldn't say showed their ass, right. you know, but if they did, that, that you were to, to think of them as limited. Oh, wow. isn't that a pity? They are so very limited. Yes. She yeah. would say. You know, I mean, those surviving women, they were serious and cold like that. You know, and but, then but you, you moved you, on to the next thing. You help me with that too when I'm going crazy. You just look at me and say, Limited. Yes. Limited. <laughs> That's all you need to know. And no. you can't expend too much, too much energy on it. And she would sometimes, she just, uh, you know, put a, a finger on my, on my forehead. Limited. Mm -hmm. So that's to say, like, don't, don't use that brain on figuring this out. Because you won't. Because racism has, you know, infinite energy and fuel and irrationality. So don't give it um, any more power. Any, any, any more power than that. Um, and so, and that was, so what I knew about the Sidwell Friends School mm -hmm. um, was that it was recently desegregated. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's conservatism, which is how I experienced it. It's changed a lot. Mm -hmm. um, it's fundamental conservatism was something that I could think about knowing that, you know, southern senators had successfully kept black people out of it just a few years before I got there. Wow. You know, Washington, when my parents moved from New York, when we moved in 1963, was a very southern city still in its desegregation process. Yes. And we were quite aware of that. And as New Yorkers... 
you know, they just, it, this was all, so, so we were outside. It was wonderful that they were from New York because mm. we were outside of that foolishness yes. and also outside of a lot of the foolishness of, you know, black D.C. high bourgeoisie. Exactly. You know, which, which they which taught was, us was foolish. And which Toni Morrison, when she went to Howard, she said she wanted to go to a black university and she was so shocked by that stuff that you're describing in terms of the black bourgeoisie that there wasn't a one community, it was about a hierarchy that was very shocking and weird to her. Yep. Yeah. And I think that, so, so that, that didn't much interest my parents and my parents too came from different backgrounds yes. as, as well. Um, yes. So even though they came from, went to the same schools, came from, from Harlem, they came from different Harlems with different backgrounds. Yes. So my mother's family came to Harlem from Tuskegee where they were a family of educators her father was Booker T. Washington's second-in-command, his treasurer, when he was building Tuskegee Institute. And mm -hmm. my father would look at these pictures of these fancy, you know, white-looking Negroes on the porch at Tuskegee and say, well, all those clothes are nice, but where's the house? Where's the property? How come you all, you know, <laughs> like, what do you, like, you know, he was being funny, but he yeah. was also sort of saying, we know that you have the education to show for it, which obviously he revered. Right. But also there was an irony in there. Yes. What do you actually have, have. to show? Uh, other than what, what do black people have to show? For other them? than being Sadidi. Other than being Sadidi. Right. And other than having read a lot of books, which again was a tremendous value. But, you know, there, there's a kind of a practicality um, that he had. That I, I found always that that was a very interesting conversation. And he would, you know, kind of, again, embellish it, Harlem storyteller. Yes. He'd say, well, there was your mother up on Sugar Hill, you know, and, and here we were you know, down below. It's their drama. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I think that the nuances, um, and this is where you start, the nuances mm. and the beauty and the contours and, and, the, and, the, and the gorgeous differences in black well, life. Well, they, they, could, they could keep each other in check too, right? Oh, all yes. the time. All the time. Yes. Yeah. You said, um, I read an interview recently, uh, it was an old one where you said that politics was just part of the family. Um, it was part of the conversation. Um, tell me how that worked. Um, you were brought to King's March on Washington as a baby. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been in your ear for your whole life. Talk, talk to me about how it worked in the family. Um, well, so, some Why of did it, your father go to D.C., by the way? Uh, so he went to Washington, D.C., um, having worked first at an organization here. He was an assistant district attorney in, in mm. New York City after graduating law school. He had served in the, in the Army as a private. He worked for an organization called Har You Act, mm -hmm. uh, a Harlem community organization. And then he came um, at the behest of President Kennedy to work for a moment for the National Security Council and then when President Kennedy was killed, he became one of um, uh, Lyndon Johnson's White House lawyers and one of three people who were working in the White House office on civil rights. So he mm. was the, the, the liaison to the people outside in the civil rights movement. So, you know, all of those meetings that the white man set up in Selma, my dad set up, right. um, uh, which is just worth saying, not to say anything about the movie, but to say, like, a 31-year-old black man... It's hard to imagine. That's that's it's the movie hard we to need imagine, to see. You know, was was doing that work and in a way not thinking nothing of it, thinking everything of it, mm -hmm. but stepping to the moment, rising to the occasion, and always understanding that his seemingly rarefied position was in service to what he always unambiguously understood as his people and our forward movement.
So that was just the way people were. But, it, you know, it was also even in hearing about, you know, Tuskegee. I mean, I remember in college reading up from slavery from the first time and thinking, you know, I hate Booker T. Washington. <laughs> <laughs> He's so concerned. I go up by the buckets. But I didn't, I didn't like any of that stuff. Um, but thinking about it from another angle, you know, what did it mean for people born into slavery mm-hmm. <laughs> to be thinking in any way about the education of newly emancipated people. Well, here's a complex and interesting point about your father, was that the South was not his old country. The Caribbean was his old country. So how was he relating to... Blackness was just blackness to him. It didn't matter. Geography didn't matter. Or what was his feeling about coming up from the West Indies, culturally? Well, yeah, it's interesting. So so, uh, he spent all his years in Harlem, but his father came from Jamaica, came to Harlem in 1918. Mm -hmm. And uh, my my grandmother, his mother, was from North Carolina, then Yonkers, then Harlem. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of what's important about that is that, you know, global blackness was not invented yesterday. Right. Right? You know, nor was the black Atlantic, (laughs) you know, nor was, you know, I mean, we've been crossing and talking to each other and, and, you know, to quote, as I always do, Gwendolyn Brooks on this, we we occur everywhere. Yes. You know, we occur everywhere, and that's an old thing. So I think that um, part of what's really fascinating about the history of New York City in particular and the history of Harlem in particular um, is that there was uh, already that kind of, uh, and I don't mean to romanticize it or, or, or flatten its differences, but there was an umbrella of blackness under which many, many, many different kinds of people uh, uh, took shelter and, yes. and, and, and worked and were together. And he, I mean, to give um, more due to your father, to give your kids that legacy is profound in a country where most people don't know past their grandparents what their world was, let alone who their people were. So when you walk into a room, one of the things that I notice is that you face it squarely too. Um, that the great heritage of your parents is not only their history, but how, the ways in which history can reinforce our very being in, in the world now. Um, so I wanted That's to... beautiful. Oh, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted you to read something very beautiful um, um, because uh, Elizabeth, on top of everything else, is an amazing performer, and I'm going to bust her on that in a minute. But... Um, <laughs> Um, from your book, Miss Crandall's School of Young, for Young Ladies and Little Misses of Color, which is a great title and a great book. It was published in 2007. And when I think of Little Lizzie, I think of the first poem, which is called Knowledge. Would you mind reading it? Certainly. Okay. And, and so this, um, the poet Marilyn Nelson, um, when she was the poet laureate of the state of Connecticut, decided that what she wanted to do, the project of that poet laureateship, was going to be to explore in poetry and turn resources to exploring and creating poetry about the history of black people in Connecticut, which history of black people in Connecticut, a topic, do we know a lot about that? Um, uh, not, not a whole lot. Um, and uh, so she invited me. She um, had been writing poetry for young Sorry. adults. That was- a delayed response, like, like, like an acid flashback. It was really funny. I'll try to make that happen a few more Thank times. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but so she invited me. She had started writing poems for young adults. 
And she said, let's do a project together. You write, you know, historical poems. I write historical poems. We were both obsessed with Prudence Crandall, mm -hmm. a white Quaker woman who started a school first for um, any young girls in, mm -hmm. um, in Canterbury, Connecticut. And then when the townspeople, um, there was a, a, a black girl who worked at the school and said, if I perform my chores, may I stay in the back of the room and study with the other girls? Mm -hmm. And Prudence Crandall said yes, and the townspeople objected. And then she said, well, and they continued to object. She said, well, then your girls, the white girls, can go home and I'll run Miss Crandall's school for young ladies and little misses of color, mm -hmm. which she did, but the townspeople uh, so opposed her, so fought her, poisoned their water source, uh, killed a cat and tied it to the front uh, mm. of the, you know, so prevented her from teaching, eventually set the school on fire. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that is her story. And we thought about who was this woman and who was this woman who met her moment, who didn't set out to be uh, uh, this kind of a rebel but was? Mm -hmm. And who are these young women who so desperately wanted to, to, to become educated? Yes. So. Knowledge. It wasn't as if, <clears throat> it wasn't as if we knew nothing before. After all, colored girls must know many things in order to survive. Not only could I sew buttons and hems, but I could make a dress and pantaloons from scratch. I could milk cows, churn butter, feed chickens, clean their coops, wring their necks, pluck and cook them. I cut wood, set fires, and boiled water to wash the clothes and sheets, then wrung them dry. And I could read the Bible. Evenings before the fire, my family tired from unending work and New England cold. They'd close their eyes. My favorite was Song of Songs. They most liked when I read In the Beginning. And of course, she's you know, the, the one in her, her family, the only one who can read. Yes. And so that's what she has for them. That's what she gives for them. And also what, them. what I love about it is the... Um, humility that one can find in pride, you know, mm. that when you're a, a deeply humble person, um, you don't have to be, um, speak of your pride, you can just do. And that's one of the things I love about you and your work. Thank you. So I wanted you to read that. Um, you know, I, I want to read one more do, in, this, in this sequence because um, uh, this was a poem, you know, one of the things about... Do you want me to um, hold anything for you? Or? No. Okay. <laughs> So I'm carrying, I'm holding this mic because I was too vain to take off my beautiful earrings. <laughs> and, and they were clacking on the microphone. <laughs> so <laughs> we can do many things at once. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, one of the things that I think is so interesting about writing historical poems and about writing in persona is, and it's a, a wonderful writing trick. I, I don't teach uh, uh, poetry as much as I used to, but a great writing trick is to ask students to choose a historical persona, someone they're obsessed with, and write in the voice of that person. And inevitably, the magic trick at the end is that you find that if you've been successful, you've learned something about yourself that perhaps you might not have been able to say directly. Right, because you're behind metaphor. Because you're behind you're metaphor behind and metaphor. behind persona. Yes. Yeah, but you're writing out of obsession. So, yes. um, so this is um, a poem called Allegiance, um, again, in the voice of one of these girls. And it's 1830, about, in these poems. 
and they're all sonnets. Teacher is bewildered when packages and letters come from far to say how brave, how visionary, how stare down the beast is Prudence Crandall of Canterbury. Work, she says, there is always work to do, not in the name of self, but in the name, the water clarity of what is right. We crave radiance in this austere world, light in the spiritual darkness. Learning is the one perfect religion, its path correct, narrow, certain, straight. At its end, it blossoms and billows into vari-colored polyphony, the sweet infinity of true knowledge. And so when I would start reading from that it, it, and imagining these young girls who traveled so far, and of course, you know, what was travel in 1830? How did you get from Lynchburg, Virginia to Canterbury, Connecticut mm -hmm. in 1830? How did your parents send you there? How did your parents say goodbye to you? Yes. Um, I, I would think as I read and would feel more and more fervor in my body as I read that poem, I would think, I believe that. Yes. I believe that. Well, you believe also in something that is um, remarkable for most writers um, are interested in their, in their nihilism, right? Most... 20th century poets have an interest in nihilism that the world begins and ends with their word. Um, one of the things that's continual, oh, continuous is that your work is a continuum, that one gesture, poetic, is to me leading into the prose gesture or the dramatic gesture. And I'm wondering um, about the power of different genres for you when you're writing um, does the genre dictate, or do you dictate how you're going to say it? Well, I've had a very, very interesting test of that with this memoir, mm -hmm. with The Light of the World. And um, uh, since it's a memoir, um, and I am more known for writing poetry, I've just been on this book tour, and people ask me, mm -hmm. um, what have you, what else, what are you working on now? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> say like... Um, sleep, sleep. You know what? Sleep, <laughs> sleep, sleep I'm going to cut perhaps. you right now. Yes, exactly. I'm working on right now. Sleep, <laughs> perhaps. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a reasonable question, but you know. Yeah. Um, but also, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of, you know, well, are you... Limited. Are you writing... Limited. Are you writing... Oh, that's right. Limited. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, are you writing poems? Do you still write... Do you still write poems? And so to a few of my poet friends, I've sort of, you know, dramatically taken to the fainting couch and said, I will never write poems. I no longer write poems. Mm -hmm. I, you know, never again. And that, you know, that is dramatic. But what is true is that writing this book showed me very, very keenly that sometimes, you know, though I... As a professor and a scholar, I'm incredibly interested in genre. Mm -hmm. I'm interested and wrote a whole dissertation on collage and hybrid genres in mm -hmm. you know, black women's creativity. Um, I think that the properties of genres are very, very, or genre, are mm -hmm. very, very important. I think that, that young writers need to understand mm -hmm. what they are writing into and against, both historically mm -hmm. and also formally. Mm -hmm. These, it's very, very, very important. But right now, what I'm feeling is that to police those borders too avidly is sometimes fundamentally anti-creative. Yes. Um, and that, you know, if to discover that I can feel 
a word and then a phrase and then some music coming up out of my viscera in the way that it does in poetry, but that it then builds into something that is prose, but its own kind of prose, mm-hmm. is, is abs- has, was thrilling. And it made me feel that I could make so much more. It made me feel that I could keep working. It made me feel that I was a real artist more than I ever felt that in my whole life. Wow. Um, So um, I feel that I have to honor the fact that genre was broken. Yes. You know, because it made something else. Oh, your role was broken, right? Your persona as poet was cracked. Yes. In the most essential way. It's like a vase and something cracks and things still keep growing out of the vase. That's right. Right? That's beautiful. That's exactly well, right. Thank you. Yes. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that one of the things that I think is um I'm just going when I was preparing today, I was going back in my mind to amazing moments watching you read or stand up for poetry. Now, when you started the Poetry Center at Smith College, this is your first job. Smith? Um, no, my first, so my first job was at the University of Chicago. Chicago. Well, my first, first job was a year at Haverford College. Haverford, And then Chicago. a proper assistant professorship at the University of and Chicago. And then Smith was when? And then Smith was after that, after um, I ran away and joined the circus and fell in love and started having babies. Yes. So I, I left Chicago and was the Conkling poet in residence, as yes. you were a Conkling writer there yes. as well. And, um, and the, the amazing Ruth Simmons was the president at Incredible. the time. And she had said to the entire campus, and by the way, she very pointedly said, and to the entire campus, I mean the people who were cooking in the kitchens, I mean the professors, I mean the administrators, I mean the sound people who, you know, make our guests' voices audible, I mean everybody. Mm-hmm. What are your dreams for this campus? Dream your dreams and write them and send them to me, and we'll see what we can do. And that's how the uh, engineering program was born at Smith, which is is an extraordinary one. And that's how the Poetry Center was born. And as it happened, the moment that I arrived there, that was blossoming, and they said to me, well, do you want to run this Poetry Center? Well, here's the thing about that is um, we both enjoyed our time there immensely, and one of the things that was very hard to do... um, walking down Green Street was not to tear up when I saw the engineering building um, because who says girls can't do math, right? That's right. And um, I often wanted my classes to be in the engineering building just to inspire Mm. the fact the architecture of language was my whole point. But anyway, so so, um, one of the things that uh, was powerful to me when I would go to the Poetry Center was to think about the ways in which your family activism, you had translated that to the academic sphere, um, making the AFAM department at Yale so powerful and huge when you were running it, starting the Poetry Center at Smith. Are these, um, I want to call them um, sort of righteous activities. Um, Is this part of your DNA as well? Well, it's interesting. You know, I've been thinking about all of those kinds of things, even at Haverford College. You know, always, Mm -hmm. you know, some of it is 
always wanting to put on a show mm -hmm. and loving putting on a show and being really bossy mm -hmm. and, you know, really, and just loving an extravaganza and loving getting everyone excited and going to the barn and you know, saying, let's go, let's mm -hmm. go, come on, this is great. Um, um, but also I've realized, seriously, I swear to God, it is about redistributing wealth and getting it to artists and people of color and women. Yes. And that is a through line all the way, even from in college. Mm -hmm. I would find what little money was there and turn it to, you know, Ritual and Descent, this incredible journal that some of mm -hmm. us made of African-American arts and, and, and letters. Um, always finding the money, asking the money, hat in hand, raising the money, and making something happen that wasn't supposed to happen in that space. Mm -hmm you know, but that needed to happen in that space or that needed to happen more fulsomely in that space. Mm -hmm. Making sure always that artists were paid mm -hmm. and paid properly. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know, to the best of my ability. It, it, it seems like a little thing, but, it's, it, but having done it now for 30 years, mm -hmm. it's very, very important. I work at a gazillionaire-ish university. Right. You know, it, there's so much money. Black folks and colored folks and women and poets ought to have some of that money because we're dead without the work they That's do. That's right. There's nothing without that, you know. We, we're, we're, well, you we're, can't we're, speak if you're not living. You can't, you can't, that's right. right, that's right. And, and I mean, also, as a friend of mine says about getting paid, she said, next time you're not getting paid, just look out and, and the person who made the ice sculpture got paid. That's right. You know, and, right. right? And the person who's pouring the drinks is getting paid. You know, now, everybody's getting paid. So, so the artists need to get paid. And institutions, I think, that have resources, I think it is um, a joy when those resources come to flow yes. in and service of the life force of art. And there's visible evidence. This, this is capital. So they want to see what's going to happen. If they give you that $25, what can you do with it? Oh, here's another 70 because you did this. Which but, we know how to do. Hello. Yeah. So... Here's my, my statement was that when you did a reading, um, it was a, um, it's a two-pronged question statement. Um, Helen Vendler wrote an essay about um, an anthology of black poetry um, that came under a lot of d discussion, let's say, um, because she was saying that there was not really enough black poetry to make an anthology. That's one of her criticisms. Um, second part of that was... When I saw you read um, Elizabeth Bishop's In the Waiting Room, oh. and there was, you were the I, but you didn't feel the same way that this Elizabeth felt about looking at these black women oh, yeah. in National Geographic. It was one of the profound performances. Where that, was that? That was at Smith? No, no. You were doing it um, with uh, Frank Bedard and a bunch of other people, yeah. James Trenton. Yes. Oh, was that um, Cooper Union? Yes, yes, yes. And, um, and I was there... And it was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. And so I wanted to talk about this idea of the black vernacular in poetry world. Um, and also, would you read a little bit of this Elizabeth Bishop? And I'd like to talk to you about it. Yes. Um, I love Elizabeth Bishop. Um, she's, um, she's one of my favorite poets. And I think that one of the, the interesting thing about living with certain poems over time and um, revisiting them and going back and, and, and understanding or, or being interested in different things as, as your own life changes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is that great poetry will continue to reveal those different things to you yes. and allow you to... Ha like, I have a real relationship with this poem. 
poem. Yes. Because when I first read it, my grandmother, who didn't, didn't, she didn't read a, a lot of um, modern poetry, but she had a copy of Elizabeth Bishop's Geography 3 mm -hmm. that was one of, and when I, she had a beautiful little perfect bookshelf in her little beautiful tiny studio apartment near the United Nations. And mm -hmm. when I would go and visit her, which I did often, um, I would read her books over and over again. And this Elizabeth Bishop was one of the books she had. I'm not quite sure why. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, she had County Cullen. You know, she had classic black poetry. Mm -hmm. She had Shakespeare, but she had this Elizabeth Bishop. And so the part that you mention, I remember as a child being um, compelled and a little embarrassed mm -hmm. and fascinated and not having words for what I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And then at different points revisiting the poem, I had more words. Mm -hmm. And I think also maybe it's important to talk about the part of an artist that is um, sheer ego. Mm -hmm. You know, of, of, of just following language that overrides all language you've ever made before. Mm -hmm. And um, about reading other poems and wanting to say those words as though you wrote them, mm -hmm. to take them yes. in your body that way. Yes. And so the sheer ego part of me loved uh, reading uh, a line that you'll know when I come to it, too. Yes. So in the, in the waiting room. You can skip around if you want, if you feel like it. Okay. Yeah. Um... Yeah, okay. Okay, okay. In Worcester, Massachusetts, <clears throat> I went with, uh, with Aunt Consuelo to keep her dentist appointment and sat and waited for her in the dentist's waiting room. It was winter. It got dark early. The waiting room was full of grown-up people, arctics and overcoats, lamps and magazines. My aunt was inside what seemed like a long time, and while I waited, I read the National Geographic, I could read and carefully studied the photographs, the inside of a volcano, black and full of ashes. Then it was spilling over in rivulets of fire. Osa and Martin Johnson, dressed in riding breeches, laced boots and pith helmets. A dead man slung on a pole. Long pig, the caption said. Babies with pointed heads wound round and round with string. Black, naked <clears throat> women with necks wound round and round with wire like the necks of light bulbs. Their breasts were horrifying. I read it right straight through. I was too shy to stop. And then I looked at the cover, the yellow margins, the date. Suddenly from inside came an, oh, of pain, Aunt Consuelo's voice, not very loud or long. I wasn't at all surprised. Even then, I knew she was a foolish, timid woman. I might have been embarrassed, but wasn't. What took me completely by surprise was that it was me, my voice in my mouth. Without thinking at all, I, we, were falling, falling, our eyes glued to the cover of the National Geographic, February 1918. I said to myself, three days and you'll be seven years old. I was saying it to stop the sensation of falling off the round, turning world in cold, blue-black space. But I felt, you are an I, you are an Elizabeth, you are one of them. Why should you be one, too? And the poem goes on from there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just sort of, you know, what to make of, uh, of, of her 
horror is that a racialized horror you know we get the word black before we come to the black people mm -hmm. you know the black in the volcano and you know something's about to happen mm -hmm. and then her horror at these images in national geographic but is it a racialized horror or is it the kind of um voyeuristic horror of a child who can't turn away mm -hmm. um and trying to sort of think about that and and the satisfaction, even as a young girl, even in that discomfort, which I, I knew there was something that wasn't quite right, of being able to then speak the line, I am an Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. And to see it in a poem, mm -hmm. I know, meant something to me. There is something very um, in tandem with that in your book, um, Power and Possibility, which I hope you pick up. It's a, it's a wonderful book of um, essays. And the first one is about um, a poet that mattered a great deal to me. Um, as a young person, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and I used to um, try to dress like Paul Lawrence Dunbar and read to my mother um, oh. as as if I'd written the poems. Um, and it was and a mother loved Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Yes, she, she yes, did. Yes. And so um, I want to. Um, this is this is a wonderful uh, occasion to read the first um, couple of paragraphs from Elizabeth's essay called Dunbar Lives, which if you know anything about jazz is a, is a reference to bird lives. In the course of writing this essay, I have found something that surprised me. Dunbar matters very much to contemporary African-American poets, and I've also discovered how Dunbar matters to me. Several years ago, in conversation with another African-American poet, I mentioned that when I was growing up, my father would occasionally recite Paul Lawrence's Dunbar's The Party, he did so joyfully and apropos of nothing but exuberance as far as my brother and I could tell. This was always a thrill. He had, quote, slipped into the vernacular, unquote, as we said, vernacular always having the article the and one's movement from another kind of speech to said vernacular always describing, described as slipping. I think, actually, that noticing and loving these shifts in diction are what made me a poet, growing up around my mother's Sugar Hill Harlem Queens English, my grandfather's Jamaican music and vocabulary, use of figurative language, my grandmother's soft, drawn-out Alabama vowels mixed with wizardry and syntactic starts shaped by her teachers in the 1920s at Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School in Washington, D.C. Now, this is something that um, you come to again and again, especially in your discussions further with Sterling A. Brown and Gwendolyn Brooks, and it's this it's jazz, really, this sort of amazing amalgamation of different sounds that come out um, through the sensibility of you or um, Sterling or whomever. But one of the things that um, interested me in terms of your development was when was it clear to you that the music was something that was feeding you as well? Because um, recently Elizabeth read very brilliantly at Village Vanguard your Richard Stravinsky poem. And, um, and I'm wondering, was it because you were a dancer first? Well, um, I think that, um, you know, I always just took music sort of for granted. I mean, it, mm -hmm. was, it was ambient. My parents had records. My parents had dance parties. That was, we'd love when they had dance parties. And my brother and I would, you know, watch and see what was going on from behind closed doors. And, and that was another kind of slip, mm -hmm. you know, like these very, you know... Uh, pulled together, you know, race people by day, 
uh, and then, you know, just getting down by night. We loved watching that, that transformation. Mm-hmm. I, I still love, I love those moments, you know, of like, oh, well, there she, she got it right there. You see, yeah. she just came out, whoop, she put it away. <laughs> but I think that's a very, a very, a very beautiful and, and mighty kind of, yes. uh, uh, of expressive power. Yes. Um, and, you know, how, I mean, the great traditions of, of, of black music, right? I mean, how, uh, you know, from jazz, there was a, I, I, I've talked about this great DJ in Washington named Felix Grant, mm-hmm. who um, had a show on WMAL-AM that began at 9 o'clock every night that I would listen to when I was doing my homework mm-hmm. on my little transistor radio. And it was a very kind of old-fashioned, wonderful, educational jazz show. Mm-hmm. You know, not quite like the Leonard Bernstein, Peter and the Wolf, or right. the, you know, the, the, the concerts for young people. It wasn't that kind of not explanatory, right. not didactic. But I learned so much listening to that. There was always there was always music. That was where my first little bit of money would go, you know, when there were the, the, the you know, 50-cent record bins. 45. And, and, yeah, and they yes. have a little uh, uh, a hole punch in the yes. corner, and you could, you could, you could buy them. Yes. So music was just very, very important. And I think that certainly, yes, you know, growing up, um, studying dance very seriously, being very devoted to that, mm-hmm. um, um, I think that that was classical music, um, which I don't really know except through dance, Mm -hmm. but I think the understanding that you're trying to make your body move in relationship to this music and that music gives you structure and form Mm -hmm. is certainly something that came uh, forward into the making of poems. Now, when you were in college and going through um, college and grad school and all of that, um, at one point um, in your biography, you worked as a newspaper person, but it didn't speak journalism didn't speak to you as a writer do he said defensively why did you <laughs> why uh-huh. um, it wasn't that it did. it spoke mm. to me greatly as a writer um, okay. I, I and I, I loved journalists and their mystique uh. and their knowledge and their there ability to there talk to strangers She's back. and their yes. everythingness I mean I really did I, 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 I love I love journalists mm. and when I little period working as a journalist I felt that it made me much braver you know it gave mm. me a, a reason to go talk to people that I didn't know mm. and to explore the city where I grew up, but to places where I hadn't been, because mm-hmm. they'd send me to, you know, Lorton Reformatory to write a story about something that was happening there. They'd send me to, you know, wherever I went, I went, and I had a reason to be there, and mm-hmm. so I couldn't be shy, and that was a really, really great thing. But what I realized was that, I mean, it, it's really true. I felt the will to embellish. Mm-hmm. I felt that I could see the line, and this was very serious business because it was the Washington Post. Shor- I arrived shortly after Janet Cook unceremoniously. Oh, left. Yes, yes. And this was an amazing story of a black woman journalist who made up a whole story about, you know, an eight-year-old who was Drug on heroin it, right. and so forth. And it turned out, and this still, I don't know, maybe I need to write about that one day, because this is still one of the most stomach-churning, dramatic tales of negressitude I have ever heard. Yes, you yes. know, right up to, you know, the fake resume, and when the story falls apart, then on her resume it says that she speaks French, and Ben Bradley comes up to her in the newsroom and says, and she can't answer because she doesn't speak French, right. but she's put it on her resume that she does. Like this, in the newsroom, he unravels her, but she's unraveled herself. Lord, have mercy. Right? So let's, let's call that show Ain't Misbehaving. Uh, that's right. But, and, you know, <laughs> and also that all the black editors and reporters at the newspaper always knew she was lying. Yes. yes. And they told the white people. Yes. Or they didn't tell the white people 
because they didn't want to bust her. That's right. Because they knew that the story made no sense. That's right. And they knew that the corner she described did not exist. That's right. So then the story also unravels as, you know, they, the editors say, okay, take us there. And she can't. Right. So I digress, but it's just to say that um, that was the climate you know, mendacious black women, uh, you know, the, um, was, was sort of in the air. Yeah. And when I started feeling that there were, you know, like, here's what was true, but I was interested in what was kind of right over mm -hmm. here, um, that, that that actually did tell me that, that I wanted to be a different kind of writer. Mm -hmm. But, but I, I feel so grateful, even just for a journalist's relationship to time, yes. to go from journalism to the academy where nothing's ever really due and shame is the motivator because, you know, you <laughs> as opposed to, like, you don't get it in by five and you're not in the paper and maybe you don't have a job the next day. That's right. I, I, love, I love that. That's right. <laughs> I think that's just a wonderful thing. Um, Sometimes I pretend it's true. Yes. If I need to get things done, but you you'll see, be fired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, of the, one of the things that I loved about um, your relationship to um, the, the stories over there um, was uh, a, a salient feature of your playwriting. And it's something that I've always been pushing you to go back to. Um, but it was one of the things that Fikra fell in love with. Um, so let's talk about that aspect of your life as a lover, mother, and how that fed the work, and also what that life was. Yes. Um, well, you know, I, I love, so look where we are, okay? Yes. Um, and, but more importantly, it's not just the Africa, and then we're about to talk about my late and beautiful Eritrean husband, right. but I mean, that's how he painted our children. Yes. You know, si like, for seriously. Yeah, beautiful little Puti, just like, just like that, yes. um, with very knowing faces, um, but with kind of East African I Coptic iconography yes. in the eyes and so forth. So I feel that we're actually kind of in exactly the in right that space. space, yeah. Um, so you know, to, and a disco rope, and a disco rope. Yes. Uh, uh, that was me, not Fikre. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we skipped over the disco years. Yes. <laughs> um, but you know, what can I say? I mean, I was lucky enough to have a partner who believed in me as no one ever has or will. Mm -hmm. You know, and who um, loved that. I mean, as I wrote in the light of the world. Um, I love that she was an artist. I love that she was a teacher. I love that she had short hair. Yes. And that we instantly went on with and made our life together after one week. After, you know, he saw my play, his yes. first words to me, which are, you know, it's, it's funny now when, again, you know, we seem to have this theme of, you know, the kind of, you know, he's like, oh, I, I loved your play. Yes. Could we talk about it? Why, certainly. <laughs> My work? <laughs> Why, sit down. <laughs> I'll, I'll sleep with you. <laughs> um, but then I never left, so it was okay. Yeah, exactly. It was okay. Exactly. Um, but, you know, so, but, but to just to, to, say, to say yes to someone. It wasn't someone. a boho situation. It wasn't a... Boho situation. Oh, no, it wasn't that... You know what I mean? You know, yeah. it wasn't that kind of exactly. situation. It wasn't exactly. that kind of situation. But, you know, to, to be fortunate enough um, to find um, a soulmate... And, again, I think the important thing to the young people <laughs> in the room is, um, is the really, seriously, is the saying yes. <laughs> you know? But, seriously, that's a very emotional... Yeah, thing. and just saying, like, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to leave my job. I'm going to let this person come and pick me up in the car and take me halfway across the country 
and I'm going to start having babies, and he will not let me starve, and I will get a job because that's how I made, and that's how I was raised, and we will be fine, and we were. And the, the power and the beauty was that, you know, to each other, he, uh, uh, you know, an amazing, brilliant person who came as a refugee from Eritrea, first walked out of the country at 16 to Sudan, went to Italy, went to Germany, landed in the United States, worked as an activist, then worked in a million kitchens, then made a restaurant with his brothers for 16 years, then really devoted himself to painting. That devoting himself to painting he had always painted, but I was the one who said, really, let's do this. Really, let's do this. Mm. And now to... You mean to, to, be, to be artists together? Well, no, but to him, to say like... I see. But it, it, see. Was, it was collective because, you know, we had, to, there, we had to make conditions for each of us to make our work. Exactly. So right. if that That's meant, you know, finding a, a, a place where he could, you know, turn the garage in the back into a studio. Or if that meant, you know, that, that he would take the kids on an adventure while I would get my writing done. Um, uh, or that we would take the time, as we did, to always be each other's usually only uh, critic. He was my only, the only person to whom I ever showed my work, ever, mm. ever, ever, ever. And he would always tell me what he thought very, very honestly, as I did with every single mm -hmm. line he ever made. So that and, kind and of... One of the things that is so brilliantly described in your book um, are the many language of, languages he spoke. So it was almost as if you had a built-in translator for what you were working through as an artist. That was someone who could hear languages that maybe weren't even on the page yet. You know, and that's so interesting. That's what I felt when I read, we read the book. I said, oh, Fikri was an amazing translator as well, translator of your poetic soul. That's really amazing because, you know, he, so he, he had a, a gift for languages, but mm. I mean, it wasn't, it was also forged out of necessity through brutal colonial mm -hmm. uh, occupation and relocation. He didn't, Which is how you know. Most of us get to speak English, right? Well, that's exactly. Right? You know, he he didn't, you know, aspire to study German. Right. He learned German because he ended up there and had to figure out a way to go to school. He didn't know a word, yes. and in nine months he was successfully going to school in German. Right. You know, having and that's just one of the many. You know, these are languages that aren't even like each other. German is not like Arabic. Is not like Tigrinya. Is not like Spanish. Is not like, you know, Italian. I mean, there are relationships, but 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 so so he was a gifted child, but also history demanded these things of him to survive. Yes. You know, and the the bounty of that you know, once he was safe and once we were in one place and building a life together was indeed um, someone who knew so many things mm -hmm. and had so many words and so many sounds. Mm -hmm. um, and we would, we would talk about what were the things that we had. We had so much in common, even though our lives were seemingly very different and started halfway around the world. Mm -hmm. And we would talk about, it was interesting, we discovered, we, we would say, Growing up, and the, the book talks about this a lot, you know, that you, how, how do people born halfway around the world find their way to each other and make a life together? Well, it happens every day. It actually happens every day. Well, I have um, only one slight objection to what, what, um, mm -hmm. what you said, and, and it's only because I feel so much um, love for you just reading everything. And the person that emerges is someone who was perfectly attuned to it, 
but had yet to hear the notes of the person. And so when he spoke to you, in your book, you talk about your body relaxing. I don't mm -hmm. think that that's just for young people. Mm -hmm. I think that when we stay open to the possibility of love and connection, that weird relaxation happens to us all. Wow. And so, you know, I feel it talking to you. Yeah. I'm ancient. It doesn't... <laughs> It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything in terms of the youth being part of what makes, us, uh, makes love accessible. I think it has everything to do with what we do when we put our bodies in the line of fire. Um, and you put your body there, and he did too. And one of the beautiful parts of this book is you said, you know, you're the relentless backseat driver, and you let him drive the mm -hmm. car. Yep. Everyone has to have one person in this life that they tell the absolute truth to. And when they say, oh, you know, I was at work and I told this fib and I didn't do the work. And, <laughs> you know, that person that you talk to yeah, and yeah, say, I'm yeah. so ashamed. Yeah. But I didn't call my mother back and, she's, and I said, oh, I left you a message and I didn't do that. <laughs> All of the stuff that makes us feel um, morally compromised. You have to have one person that you reveal that to, or you will go crazy in this world. And so the power of the book is that you're not just telling Fikri that in life that you were sharing, but you're telling it to him now. Mm. And, so do, and so doing that, you're telling it to the rest of us. Well, that, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you know, that's, thank you. And I think that one I don't of the think things... You, I don't think you, you will ever stop having that openness, Elizabeth. You just won't. It's, it's in your work. Well, you know, one of the things that's been... So I've been on this really interesting book tour. Yeah. Um, and I say interesting because, you know, with, with books of poems, people meet the poems in all kinds of ways for all kinds of really interesting reasons. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of people who come to this particular book because it's memoir, because of the story. Right. Um, and, but it's not just because they feel like that happened to me. It's because something else happened to them that feels resonant mm -hmm. that they want to, sh to <clears throat> yes. share. Yeah. And so that's been really interesting. But, but I've also been learning, this is to your point about uh, kind of what happened to make this book. Right. You know, yes. and I've been thinking about, you know, you, you, you cite the passage where um, I describe myself as a backseat driver and, and you know, <laughs> yeah. there's so many revelations. Um, <laughs> um, but that I finally relax. And then you'll recall at the end of that, I, I, open, I open my eyes and I hear his voice and he says, and this is after we've known each other for a month, he said, Lizzie, calls me Lizzie. Mm -hmm. He's never called me Lizzie before. Mm -hmm. And he says, and that's my intimate name from my nieces and nephews. Mm -hmm. He says, Lizzie, you have land in Africa. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I just bore witness to some things mm -hmm. in this book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because or, you know, when I describe, you know, um, going with when my son Simon at the age of mm -hmm. 12 says, do you want to come to visit daddy with me in heaven? Yes. You know, and I'll take you there. Yes. Um, I feel like, I mean, yes, you know, craft. Absolutely. There's yes. tremendous, tremendous, you know, blood soaked, sweat stained craft in yes. here. And I'm very proud of that. But I also feel like there's a bearing witness to 
life and its power and its beauty and its terror. We mm -hmm. were talking earlier about, you know, there's the Rilke quote in the book that's so meaningful to me, mm -hmm. let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. And then it continues, no feeling is final. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel yes. that that's kind of yes. what happened here. Exactly. It's sort of like when you're watching a film and the film, you're looking at the corners of the film and you know that there's life not being framed, but it's there and that's permeating and making the image so vivid for you. Mm -hmm. It's not just what you see, but what's around. And the aura of the book and the aura of your writings um, has something to do with life that will continue past the page. A lot of what I meant by nihilism in poetry, 20th century poetry, was that the world begins and ends with the word in a lot of 20th century and 21st century poets. But one of the things, and poetry encompasses all of your work, um, one of the things that is extraordinary about um, all of your work is that it continues past the page in my mind. Um, you can go, you can visit the page in your writing, and then your mind will go somewhere else because that was the passport to go mm. somewhere else. That's so nice. Yeah. Um, and uh, that... I think the, the, one of the pleasure, you know, I mean, of course, writing is, is both not pleasurable and profoundly pleasurable, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I mean, actually doing it. Mm -hmm. It's so, I mean, hard isn't even the word. What is the word for what we, what we do when we labor to mm -hmm. make it? Um, but then, Masochism? Uh, something, something, something. Like that. but then when you turn the corner, and there's you no realize there's no better feeling yes. when you can make shape um, from all the muck. Um, and that, to me, that the, the joy of the experience of kind of following, you talk about the, the passport, mm -hmm. you know, following this to this to this. Should I read a little bit? Well, I'm just, I want you, I'm desperate to have you do that. And I just want to say one other thing to that mm -hmm. point was that um, one of the things that I love about the book and in, all of your writing, I really want to stress people, you've got to read the whole schmear. Um, there's a great Paul Marshall essay called The Poets in the Kitchen, and she mm -hmm. talks about the West Indian women sitting around the table and discussing life. And what you were talking about past the craft aspect of it really is the voice of the book um, is beyond... Um, literary convention mm. and it's free in that way that conversation and the soul is free so mm. please read wow did, um, did you have something uh, you know what I love I thought um, they would like the part of just the list of the things that you had together you know when you had two, two oh, houses yes. and children and stuff yes yes is, yes. That, is that a good thing that is good okay <laughs> and maybe read the little Simon thing yes please Won't take but a minute. Yes. Should have marked that little part. It's okay. Um, I wonder if I can find that. If, if you don't, it's okay. You can read whatever you like. Okay. Oh, here we go. This okay. is what, yeah. Okay. We had 15 Christmases together. Almost 15 years of marriage, 16 years together, 1996 to 2012, we always said it felt longer than it was. 
I would estimate at the end that we had a 25-year marriage, and Fikre would agree. That long, that much struggle, that much jubilee. In our extended family and family of friends, two cancers, two heart surgeries, one drug addiction, two mental hospitalizations, marriages, babies, funerals, Easter's, and Thanksgivings. Our friend's parents and one friend's son died. Together we went bearing food and hot coffee. Together we went to the various places of worship in our best black clothes. Three houses, two cities, one job change, two closed businesses, one started business. Money went, money came. Several bad boyfriends of nieces, several good, three lovely husbands of nieces, one lovely wife of a nephew, six lovely babies. Four homes owned, three sold, hemorrhoid surgery, dental surgery, no broken limbs. One political regime change, the end of one war, the start of another, an East African-American U.S. president, several refugees, two U.S. naturalization swearings in, two new citizenships. Together we chose two daycares, two nannies, fired one nanny in six days because at one and a half, Solo said no. Stayed with the other for three years and wept when it was time for her to leave us. One nursery school, two elementary schools, one middle school, one high school. We planned 15 Thanksgiving dinners, 15 Easter's, and at last, one feast of the seven fishes. One Easter, Fikre found a sheep farmer in Cheshire, Connecticut, and had a lamb slaughtered for his sister Tadu, for her sebhe, the rich and spicy Eritrean meat stew, and her roast. We found where we could buy Italian Easter bread shaped in a cross with a hard-boiled egg baked in. Buon Pasqua, he'd say, and so would I. Three trips to Italy where we had family in which was our ironic colonial demi-motherland, each time to different places. Rome, Venice, Florence, Amalfi, yes, but also Bari, Celle, Ferrara to see in-laws and friends. London, Scotland, Spain, Oakland, the diaspora of our family. Milan awaited, and Bella Toscana, and Naples, once the crime settled down. And Sicilia, he wanted to smell the mint crushed underfoot. The Alhambra awaited, and the orange blossoms in southern Spain in very early springtime. Um, and then... <clears throat> We loved Jimmy Scott's version of the David Byrne song, Heaven. Heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. These days I picture heaven populated by the umber angels Fikre painted in abundance, but that seems too fanciful. I never truly believed in heaven and cannot manufacture it. Little Jimmy Scott's plaintiveness seems right when he sings, Nothing ever happens. How better to describe the infinite solitude of the afterlife? When this kiss is over, it will start again. It will not be any different. It will be exactly the same, he sings. Each kiss is fixed. It is the same long kiss, but it will never change. That is the comfort, and that is the heartbreak. One night at bedtime, Simon asks if I want to come with him to visit Fikre in heaven. Yes, I say, and lie down on his bed. First you close your eyes, he says, and ride the clear glass elevator. Up we go. What do you see, I ask. God is sitting at the gates, he answers. What does God look like, I ask. Like God, mommy, he says. Now we go to where daddy is. 
He has two rooms, Simon says, one room with a single bed in his books and another where he paints. The painting room is vast. He can look out any window he wants and paint. That room has four views, our backyard, the dock he painted in Maine, Asmara, and New Mexico. New Mexico, I ask. Yes, Simon says, the volcano crater with the magic grass. Ah, yes, I say, the caldera, where we saw the gophers and the jackrabbits and the elk running across, and Daddy called it the Velt. Yes, do you see it? And I do see it. The light is perfect for painting. His bed in heaven is a single bed. Okay, it's time to go now, Simon says, so down we go. You can come with me any time, he says. Thank you, my darling. I don't think you can find it by yourself yet, he says, but one day you will. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.